right. Good morning again. So great that you could be here. We're going to jump right into Nehemiah 9. Um, we are actually uh, going to finish out chapter 9 today. And so we are going to be in verse 32. <clears throat> excuse me. And we're going to go right to the end of the chapter, which is verse 38. And so it says now, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness Do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and in all your people. From the days of the kings of Assyria to this day, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law, or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions, which, which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit, And its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. There I am. It's abundance, verse 37. It's abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. In verse 38. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. So for those of you maybe that just joined us, it just seems arbitrary that we just jump right into this here. Now, therefore, our God, what we're hearing and what we're reading is actually a covenant prayer that the Levites and all the people in Jerusalem came together and they put this covenant prayer slash treaty, if you've been following us through the chapter, this models some of the ancient Near East treaties that were going on around that time. They have come together and put this down in writing because they have been regrouped in Jerusalem and now they want to be the people of God again. And so they've, these guys were not born into this land. They were born in exile under the Persian or Assyrian Empire. And so when they were called back to Jerusalem after Zerubbabel had built the temple and Nehemiah came and built the walls, they had never even known or read about the law of God. They heard about it, but they never knew it. And when they heard it, read to them and saw how much they were failing, they came and they confessed their sins And they said, we have to do something about it. So they're writing this treaty. So that's sort of where we're at right now. But the question is, is what I want to deal with today are right motives. Now, have you ever found yourself doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons? Recently, I was operating the down box at my son's high school football game. That's a really tough job. You have to flip the first down, second down, third down. And I happened to be on one of the, on the opposing team's sideline. 
And so I got to stand in the opposing team and hearing their coaches and all this different stuff. And from the very beginning of the game, each time the ref would stand by the coaches, because I had to sort of follow the ref wherever he was, the coaches in between plays would start to schmooze the ref. And it was so obvious. They would compliment him. They would small talk with him. Hey, we're so thankful you're the ref. You're the best. How are your children doing? Now, that was a good call, ref. I'm not kidding. This is exactly what happened. But this ref was an old timer. He was actually celebrating his 50th year refereeing. And so after these compliments, each time he would look at me and sort of roll his eyes, he knew exactly what their motive was. And he didn't budge. Doing the right things, but for the wrong reason. When we do the right things, but with the wrong motive, it's usually because our motive is a selfish one. It's something that we are trying to get out of it. It could be greed, like maybe flattering your boss with words that aren't necessarily true. So he or she will give you a raise or a promotion. It could be pride. I know this is something that I used to and still struggle with. Purposely talking about your work in the ministry, you know, getting it in there in the conversations, letting people know what we're doing so they'll be impressed by our religious commitment. Most of us aren't quite as bad as Judas, but he intended to betray Jesus. And he says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? And I'm sure others said, wow, Judas is such, he is so religious. What a great guy, bless his heart. Not knowing that he did this because he wasn't concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was in charge of the money box. And that's in John 12. Now, as we see through the entire Bible, if you read through the entire Bible, you will see a pattern. You will see that God is less concerned about your actions than he is about your motives. Because he knows that with the right motive, the right actions will come about. But the problem is, is oftentimes we go for the action before our motives are right, before our heart is right. And that's what I believe and what I've been consistently saying through this whole chapter and really through this whole book of Nehemiah is that Israel had the right intentions but their motive was wrong. They were doing the right thing, but with the wrong heart. And you look at this whole covenant prayer, and you will see, even in the passage that we just read, there's a lot of deferring responsibility. Throughout the whole passage, you never see them saying, we love God, so we want to do X. It's all about getting the check boxes checked off, getting their life in line with God's law and through the whole entire Bible and whole entire history with Israel, we see God just shaking his head. So what I want to talk about are what are your motives for following God? Because God cares first, here's our premise, about the motive in our relationship with him especially as it relates to change, embracing the correct motive must be our starting point. Because why I say change is because over the past 
four or five weeks, we've been in chapter nine and we've been really cranking away at these entangling sins that Israel was involved in. We've been, uh, we, we talked about God's admonishment and his discipline, his admonishment, his warnings through his prophets, through his people, through the word, so gracious, so loving, but yet people still, Israel and us as well, we block it out. And so then God moves to discipline. And even then, after the discipline, you see the pattern. They would get disciplined by God. They would cry out to God. They would, he would deliver them again. He would discipline by God, put them in the hands of their enemies, cry out, God would deliver them again. God is a gracious God. He will never let go of his people. But he is not a fool. He is a father that is faithful to love like a father. And so our automatic reaction now is, how do we change to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so that's what I want to talk about today, is it must be with the right motive, because that's what God cares about. You'll see here in Israel, with Israel's motive that we just talked through in this specific passage, there's a lot here that we could go into, but I'm just going to pick one or two. For instance, verse 32 they, you know, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all of this hardship seem insignificant to you. And he's, they're referring to the previous passages of that historical prologue, remember, in that covenant. The historical, pro, every covenant has a historical basis to it. And then they have the blessings and the curses. And then after that, they have the, the, what we would call the Pledge of Allegiance, which, we're good, which is what we're at today. So they just got done hearing all the blessings and curses. They just got done hearing about, you know, God re reflecting back on the discipline. So now they want to change, and they're going to put this agreement in writing. And they're all going to sign it. Chapter 10 is like, you know, 20-some verses of all the people who signed it. So they had the right actions, but I believe they were still missing the heart. And so, yes, they were worried about their hardship. They have pity on us, O Lord. Verse 36 and 37, deliver us from the pagan rule. Let us have the land that you gave us. We're sitting in it now, but we're in bondage. Give us what you promised. And because, in verse 38, because of all this calamity, Lord, we are going to write a contract with you. We are going to formalize this. And again, it's that Pledge of Allegiance, or officially it's called the um, Arrangement for Preservation. How is this going to preserve itself? Well, they said, let's write a contract out. Let's tell God everything we're going to do in the future and everything we're not going to do, and this will be the testament that we are making this covenant. But the one thing they were missing in this whole entire chapter is true, authentic, sacrificial love for God. It's never expressed, yet it's the foremost command by God is love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
That is the first and greatest commandment. But yet it's never mentioned in this restoration of the covenant. It's because the heart is one of the most deceitful things that we can ever think of, ever imagine. Every wicked thing that's ever happened in this world has started in the seed of, with a seed in the heart of man. And the Bible says that he wants us to circumcise our hearts. And the picture there is imagine your heart just having this layer of calloused skin that's just going over and over and over and over. And it's just preventing the heart from being accessed. And God says, just rip that off. Get rid of the flesh. And then your heart will be made new. And God is the one who does that. God is the one who gives us that new heart. But as we're going to see here, God's grace always demands exercising of that grace. God's grace always demands faith, where it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. So God gives us the gift of grace. He gives us the gift of faith, but we have to exercise it. And that's what James is talking about. In his book, Faith Without Works is Dead. There's no evidence, there's no exercise of the grace. And even in Romans, Paul talks about Israel pursuing God for change, but with the wrong motive. Romans 9, 31, 32. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but they did, as it were, mere works. Now, this word works means business or employment. So they looked at it as a, as a means to an end to please God. We're going to do these works. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to follow the law. But their heart was never right, so it continually crashed and burned. True faith and true love go hand in hand. Faith in God is always an expression of the love that you have for God. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love, it says, it refers to faith. It says, it believes all things. It always trusts. It hopes all things. This is all faith language, talking about love. <clears throat> now, why is it that God wants love to be our ultimate motivation? The reason is, is because God always deals with his people and, and with everything out of love. It is impossible for God to be selfish. God does nothing for the sheer enjoyment of his self. He does everything in a selfless way. And so he wants his people to emulate that selflessness. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 8. And so our motives have to align with God's motive. Amos 3, 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? No. I remember in, in film, an, an actor and a director must have the same motive. Not only for the character but also for every single scene in a film. And if you watch a movie, you'll see that what makes a good movie is the consistency of scenes that carry and make sense and flow 
because the motive of the actor is being expressed correctly by the actor. It has to be expressed out. Those scenes make sequences. Remember speaking to someone and saying, well, what is your motive in this scene? The actor says, well, I'm trying to get the person to leave the room disappointed. That was his goal. And I said, well, that's really not it. You don't want him to leave disappointed. You want him to leave angry. And so there were two different motives there, anger and disappointment. Each caused two different emotional reactions in the story. If the actor plays it with a motive of disappointing the other person, he may tenderly express some bad news. But if he wants that person to be angry when he leaves the room in his intention, he may be antagonistic or mocking a little bit in how he speaks. And those two things must always go together. And us, our motive must be aligned with God's motive. His motive is love. Our motive cannot be self. His motive is love. Our motive cannot be religious experience. His motive is love. Our motive can't be, well, you know, this is going to be really good, but because I am going to get something out of it. It's got to be purely for the glory of God. Is where the pure love is, is the expression of the pure love. It's for him. It mirrors the selflessness of God. Now, again, this Levitical covenant seemed right, wrote good content. But the consistent pattern of Israel through the Bible is always inconsistency with love. And believe me, I'm not pointing the finger back at them. I'm pointing the finger right back at me because we're the same way. We're no different. So how do we make sure our motive is from a pure love for God? Especially if you're looking to change your life, if you're looking to clean up your life, if you're struggling with sin, if you know that you are going in the wrong direction, the answer isn't to go out and get busy with church, listening to Christian music, reading your Bible every day, although those are good things. You're putting the cart before the horse. One thing we do is we get caught up in the outward change before the inward change. And you know what I'm talking about. If anyone's here has ever worked in a job that they don't like, or maybe you're in a job that you really don't like, your heart's not really in it. This is opposite of doing what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Love God and you'll never labor to follow him a day in your life. If you're laboring in your relationship with God, it could it be that your, your, your goal and your motive is not aligned with God. And I, I say these words because I care about you. I care. I'm responsible to say this truth to you. I can't just tell you everything's going to be okay. Grace, 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 grace. Yes, grace, 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 grace. But also the exercise of that grace. And that's what we're focusing on today. True conversion is the first required step. And that's hard to say because I love all, everyone here I mostly know. I know many of you love the Lord. But I also know too that when people are not truly converted, they don't know it. And so we must take precaution when Scripture shows it. You can't truly see the kingdom of God unless you're first 
changed by the Spirit of God. Now, when this happens, when God changes your heart, the natural expression from that heart change will be love for Jesus Christ. You won't have to, you won't have to try. It will be a compelling, constraining love. You may not go around and, and, and act like I would do, or you may not act like the person next to you, but you will know. According to your personality, according to who God made you, you will know that there is and there has been a change. We have to drill this into our minds. There is no other way to please God other than through loving his son, Jesus Christ. No other way. You could be the absolute greatest philanthropist. You could have the best personality. You can give all of your possessions to the poor. You could go into full-time ministry. You could do and go, the list can go on and on and on. If you do not love Jesus Christ, God does not listen. <clears throat> you have to not just love him with a token love, not just with an emotional love, but with a meeting of your heart and his heart. That's why it says, love him with all of your heart. And with all of your soul. He's covering all the angles here. And with all of your mind. And with all of your strength. That's the requirement. In ancient cultures, <clears throat> if a person saved your life, you would owe a literal debt to that person who saved you up to and including the giving of your very life. That's the type of culture that we're looking at here in Nehemiah. These ancient cultures. Somebody saved your life. It's not like, oh, thank you, man. I appreciate you. Here, take my number. No, no, that's okay. It's all for the Lord. No, yeah, give me your number because you owe me your life. That's how it would be. And you would be fine with that. You might, you might say, I'm going to be your slave. I'm going to come to your house every single day and do whatever you want, nine to five, every single day. And that's what I'm going to do. Me and my whole family. And they may take you up on that. <clears throat> how do you please someone who saved your life? Give them whatever you have that is in your power. And that is your life when it comes to Christ. Jesus says, lay down your life. It is, it is very explicit theological language. Lay down your life for me. Die for me. Die to self for me. Pick up your cross. But the cross is heavy, Lord, and it's thorny, and it's uncomfortable. Pick up your cross and follow me. And then we realize because we have been trying to carry the cross out of our own flesh, we've got splinters everywhere. But when we give our heart to Christ first, that cross is embraced and loved and it becomes your best friend. We try to make deals with God like we see here. We're going to write this covenant. We're going to do this. Lord, from now on, I'm different. Done. When people say that to me, I say, hold up. Before you start making a list of all the things you're going to do, seek the Lord with all your heart. Go to him as, as we said last week, beg him to change you. You haven't suffered so that you're shedding blood. That's what Paul talks about when he talks about suffering for Christ. 
How much more should we agonize in prayer if our Lord agonized in prayer and bled from his forehead because of the intensity of it? To die for you. In business, <clears throat> we, can, we can do pretty much whatever we want if we have enough money. I remember in real estate, the mantra used to be, it's not what's for sale, but that everything's for sale. Because if you wanted a place that was in a certain town, you didn't look to see the for sale sign. You just went and, not, and went to that place you wanted and made them an offer. And if you made a good enough offer, they would take it. Not so with God. God will have nothing to do with that. We can't make him an offer he can't refuse. He's not the Godfather. He is God, the Father. He will refuse every attempt to please him outside of laying your life down for Christ. Everything else is invalid. Every sin, as, as every sin we commit, flows out of our Adamic nature from Adam. Every sin we commit flows from that sin and our, our corrupt nature. As every sin we commit flows from that nature, all the good we can do for God can only flow out of our love for Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the reverse of the curse. So now, out of, because we're, we're in Adam before we know Christ and all we can do is sin, then when we turn to Jesus Christ and we get a new nature, God gives us a new heart. And now all we can do is good because we're covered with Christ's blood. God works all things for good to those who he loves and are called according to his purpose. His grace covers us. However, if the grace is just sitting there and it's not being used, you ought to question whether or not it's there. Crying out to God with all of our hardships and needs without loving Christ is like the prophets of Baal. Crying out to their nothing God. 1 Kings 18. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar trying to stir up this prophet of Baal that didn't exist. Or I mean, this, this God of Baal that didn't exist. And as Elijah said to them, he will say to us. If we try to call on God outside of Christ, call with a louder voice. He was being sarcastic. Maybe he's using the restroom, your God, and he doesn't hear you. Or maybe he went on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. Elijah was pretty sarcastic. He was only one, and the prophets of Baal were numerous, hundreds. And then Elijah, because he loved God and he had faith, he called down fire from heaven but not after he soaked the sacrifice in water and God threw a thunderbolt down, I'm assuming, and, and torched that thing up. And all the prophets that were calling out to a God that didn't exist perished. Your cry will not land on the heart of God unless it comes from Christ. Would your employer or maybe one of your customers, if you're in business, but they put up with a halfway commitment? I don't think you, I don't think so. If you're a business owner, do you put up with halfway commitment? If you have people working under you, do you put up with halfway commitment? You don't torch them right away, but you let them know this is not right. Where is your heart? Would your spouse 
fiance, boyfriend, girlfriend, would, would they be okay with a part-time marriage situation? Hey, I'm going to split it all up equally among all you. No. That's the covenant of marriage means 100%. That covenant, in a covenant, someone must die. And when you get married, you have died to your spouse. And they have died to you. And you become one, that new, that new person in Christ. Some very, very explicit language here by Jesus, Matthew 12, 30. He who is not with me is against me. I say that because a lot of times we could think that we're, there's a little neutral ground. I could just stay in this area right here. And that's called lukewarm highway. Right in the middle. And you know what Jesus says about that. He who does not gather with me scatters. So there's no such thing as just staying still, is there? It's either going forward for Christ or going backwards to flesh. And we heard the reading from Chris today, Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not, whoever doesn't forsake, get rid of it, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Have you done that? Now, before you run to eBay and start selling stuff off, give it to me. I'll take it because that's not what this means. What it means is, is God has to be, Jesus Christ has to be your all in all. And I mean that as an exclusive, 100%, no other but God, no other purpose in your life greater than following Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Typically, if there is a false conversion, like I said, it's rarely evident to the unconverted Christian or even maybe to the people around them. Typically, they're trusting in some sort of previous religious experience, something they did, a prayer they said, a feeling they had, an emotion they felt. But all the while, there is no fruit. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, they say, well, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? This is not like simple stuff. This is powerful things to do. Prophesy in the name of the Lord. Cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Go and those demons leave. Perform many miracles in your name. People getting healed. People getting their sickness cured. Leprosy going away. Oh man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm God's man. Jesus says, you know what? I never knew you. But thanks for doing that work. But you never turned fully to me to know me. So depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Isn't that crazy? That God, when we do good deeds and we do good things for the Lord, but it's not out of pure love for Christ, it's lawlessness. It's sin. They called Jesus Lord. They preached Christ. They casted out demons. They did all the right things for the wrong reason. They didn't know Christ. <clears throat> they put their hand to the plow and they let go. They turned back. A.W. Tozer said, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience 
by accepting Christ and they have not been saved. This is what happened to Israel and this is what happens to countless people and countless numbers of churches every single week. If Christ isn't everything to you, he is nothing. If he's not everything, he isn't, he's absolutely nothing. If Christ isn't Lord over all, he is not Lord at all. Again, I'm not talking about a personal, personal Lord, personal Savior. No, it's much bigger than that. That's true. He is your God and your Lord, but he is Lord of all. He is Lord over heaven and earth. He is ruling currently in heaven at the right hand of God, enthroned royally at the throne. He is judge of the living and the dead. Your life is in his hands and you can meet him any second. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to fear you into this. This is a true thing. We know that our, our fellowship experiences trials, tribulations, tragedies. But yet we go on thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to do it next week. You know, maybe next month. If not, uh, you know, when I get everything right. No, God is the sin bearer. He wants you to come with all your sin. He wants you to come with all your little chinks in the armor. He wants you to come with all your uh, discrepancies, all your confusion, all of your doubts, all of your skepticism. He wants you to come so he can heal you. And he will if you come. We talked a lot about this new Jerusalem that Nehemiah built or helped rebuild is a type or a, or a shadow or a signpost towards the kingdom that was actually inaugurated at Christ's ascension. It points to that new kingdom, right? So Jerusalem is being rebuilt. The people are being gathered. The temple is there. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the temple. He launches the kingdom and the people are there. So it's sort of like a parallel. His kingdom on earth now is a type of this future heaven, new heavens and earth. And Israel living half-hearted in that Jerusalem is a type of false conversion. Which points to the fact that some living in Christ's kingdom today are also the same. So that's hard. It's hard to hear. It's hard to preach. It's hard to, under, it's hard to understand. I don't know. I don't have it figured out. I'm just preaching what I believe the word of God says. But take it serious. Again, we saw what happened when God sent people to preach to them and they rejected it. I know for myself, I had many times where people would preach to me and it would just turn my skin. My skin would feel inside out. I'm so sick of hearing about this Christianity. <sighs> Wacky Christians. That's what I used to say. As, a, as a, a Christian, like as somebody that thought they accepted Christ by going up to an altar and saying a prayer, got married under the, in the Lord, did all that stuff, and then I realized, you know what? I'm slip sliding away. I don't truly love Christ. I was trying to just get saved from hell. Now that's a benefit. But that's only page one of a million page book. God has so much more for you. So much more to use you with. So much more glory and joy to give you. But we have to come to the grip of admitting to God, confessing to God, agreeing with God.
if your heart isn't right to make it right. And if that's you, then I want you to do that. I'm not going to ask you to come up here, but I'm just, you can pray right exactly where you're at and just call out to God. And I promise you that he will be faithful to save you, to restore you, and to confirm that restoration. So what do we do? I'm going to give a little bit of a summary here. How do we ensure our motive is right towards God? And again, we could go a lot of different places. I'm going to just try to reiterate a couple of things. Of course, the end-all be-all in your relationship with God has to be pure love for Christ. He will not be pleased without a pure love for Christ. But really what I think is the best test is to be a fruit inspector. Be a fruit inspector. I remember almost reaching for a piece of artificial fruit one time, and it was the most beautiful fruit display I ever seen. But upon further, deeper inspection, it was hard and it was fake. False conversion looks real. So how do we examine the fruit? Well, I'm not just saying, well, the, what are you doing for God? Because we already know you could be doing miracles. And that doesn't mean anything. You can be prophesying, but that doesn't mean anything. How do we truly know that we have Christ? Is if we have him through his Holy Spirit in our heart. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit in our heart? Well, there's the fruit I want you to inspect. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Maybe I said kindness, goodness twice. I don't know. Faithfulness. And most important, self-control. See, that's the anchor of all of it. It's not fruits. It's fruit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's love in your heart, which is expressed through joy in Christ, through peace in Christ, through patience with God in Christ. Through kindness on how you treat your enemies, not how you treat your best friends and your family members that you love so much. How do you treat your enemies, the ones that wronged you, the ones that hate you? I'm not saying you want to chase them down and, you know, keep inviting them to dinner or all that stuff. No, you could just give it to God. That's, that could be a form of love. Goodness. Again, the goodness is not from us, but from God. We look and we see Christ's goodness and we acknowledge our, the opposite is what we can take. We don't have that goodness, right? So anything good in you and anything good in me, if we have the spirit of God, it tells us it's not you, it's the Lord. And you're okay with that. You actually love that. You actually hate that self. You hate that, does that pride that always wants to, step in front of God and say, look at me. Remember when, when I was, my brother was born, I was five years old and he was coming home from the hospital and my, my dad, I guess, was filming him and I was just jumping in front of the camera going, look at me, look at me, right? Because I wanted all the attention. I was five years old. I'm 52 and it hasn't changed. It's gotta be a daily death. <clears throat> The other thing I want to encourage you to do is go to extremes. I know we have people that will go to extremes. Well, you know, what are you talking about? 
I don't mean going running into the demilitarized zone in North Korea going, Jesus, and getting shot down. What I'm talking about is go to extremes to make sure your debt has been paid. I remember losing my license for some reason or another. Lost it lots of times, but one time I lost it, I think, for non-payment of something, a ticket, or I don't remember. But I remembered that I, my instinct was just to write a check and mail it in to the DMV. We know how that would have went. So I hand-delivered that check. I wrote it out. I drove to the DMV. I waited however long I had to wait. And I said, here it is. Restore my license. I'm hand-delivering it. That's what I mean. Don't leave it to just to circumstances that are going to happen in your life. No, you need to go do business with God through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want you to examine yourself as I will join you as, I, <clears throat> as we pray. Meditate on this. Behold, now is the time, the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today. Father, <clears throat> please examine our hearts, Lord. Let, us, let this be the very last second, the very last moment that we ever live a halfway life for you. <clears throat> let this be the very last second and moment that we are half surrendered. Lord, let this be the very last moment, please, that we, if we don't know you, that we come to you by just giving you our heart, Lord. The heart that you've opened. I pray, Lord, that people here would be moved by your spirit, myself as well, to do what we need to do to get right with your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for sending him to die. Thank you for him paying the debt that we could never pay. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.